Hello and welcome to The Mastering Show. My name is Ian Shepherd. I'm a mastering engineer and I run the production advice website aiming to help you get the best out of recording, mixing and mastering your music. And I'm really excited this week to have such a fantastic guest. Uh, joining me is the amazing Sylvia Massey. I'm sure most of you already know about her, but she is an engineer, a producer, uh, she's an artist, and she's written a fantastic new book. And I asked her to come on the podcast, mainly because I think anybody listening to this should be buying her book and reading it because it's so fantastic. So, um, Sylvia, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you, Ian. Thanks for inviting me. So I'm sure that people do know about you and you've done plenty of other interviews where you've kind of talked about your journey. But I mean, for just very briefly, Sylvia started out engineering, which was the first, was it Larrabee Studios, the first one? Oh, I was in San Francisco when I started out uh, recording and uh, I got to work with um, uh, a very young Kirk Hammett co-producing a local San Francisco band um, as far as having one, one good project that got a lot of attention. And uh, when they, when that band called the Sea Hags was signed to Chrysalis Records, I thought this was my big chance to work on a major label project. But uh, at the time they went to Los Angeles and worked with Mike Klink instead. So I realized that if I really wanted to do something, I needed to move to, to LA. And that's when I started working at Larrabee. Um, but Kirk Hammett, he was a, he was a youngster. He had just joined Metallica and they had just finished the album Master Puppets when I worked with him as a co-producer on that project. Wow. That's way back then. Yeah, it was. And then when you went to LA, you ended up working as a, as an engineer and, uh, kind of assistant producer, I think on, on with, I mean, just about everybody like Aerosmith and Seal and Elton John and George Clinton and Tom Jones. And the one that jumped out at me was Prince because I think I'm right. in think, did you work on diamonds and pearls? Yes. I worked on three different Prince projects, actually. Uh, he, the first, when I first started working on the Prince, uh, sessions he was finishing the batman soundtrack which was the first batman movie mm-hmm. um, and then uh, he went straight into graffiti bridge which was the the uh, the second movie to purple rain the the follow-up movie to purple rain yep. and the soundtrack to that which was really really quite special and uh, the third project was the um diamonds and pearls there was there were several other projects uh, sprinkled in between those sessions, and because he was writing music for several different artists, uh, other artists uh, were using his songs. So he really had a factory going there at Larrabee and at other studios, where each room had an engineer, and he would pop between rooms and write, record, and mix two songs per day per room per studio so he was really uh, very prolific during those years and that was around uh 1989 through 93 i think yeah I, I i remember that so well because that was when i was at college so i i mean 
I've admitted to this before, so I shouldn't. I was I was getting uh, bootlegs of his like the after show parties and stuff from, yeah. you know, the, the the legendary gigs that he did, and and I was actually kind of trying to remaster them myself. I had two boom boxes, and I would one of them had a graphic EQ, so I could roll the treble out in the quiet passages to reduce the hiss, and then bring it back up for the loud sections. I didn't know I was mastering back then, but with with hindsight, that was kind of the first thing that I ever did. No kidding, that's a great story. Yeah, it's and I have just such fond memories of that that time and it's it's interesting as well because i don't know what kind of influence you or the the studios where you were working would have had but i for me i kind of heard a, a change in his sound around them you know around about the time of the batman album that the whole sound kind of got bigger and more it sounded to me like more produced more i don't know deeper bass sparklier highs all that kind of stuff um i don't know whether that was a decision on his part or whether that was the influence of the people he was working with well i could say that the some of the early his earlier Recordings were done at his place on his API with Susan Rogers engineering, uh, no doubt a lot of it. But uh, when he came to L.A., I think he was using SSL consoles at that time, solid state logic, for the most part in those studios. And that would have changed the the sonic character of the, the music. But one thing I did notice is when he was doing the recordings, in um, LA that he would push the levels to tape so much harder than any other artist that I'd ever worked with because we were very careful to align the tape machines and and we were conservative with levels uh, so that we wouldn't oversaturate the tape. But that's exactly what he wanted to do. He wanted that sound. And I think that came from his early days working uh, on the API is that he got really used to that that real grainy vintagey kind of funk with a, a lot of um, uh, fur on it, you know what I mean, mm -hmm. from from pushing the levels. It was a different sound when you do the same type of treatment through an SSL. So I, I, I can understand why there was a change in the sound. Plus, there was a whole hell of a lot of tracks available uh, <laughs> in the bigger studios in L.A., um, even though he did really grow his own uh, his own studio at Paisley Park too, around the same time. I understand. I didn't ever go to Paisley Park to work. I was offered a job there towards the end of my time with, uh, I didn't take him up on it actually. So. Well, that was when things were just starting to take off for you. Was it, was that around about the time of tool and. Exactly. I'd, I'd been working with Prince on and off for three years and I just had gotten the offer to work on the tool record as producer uh, and then the Prince offer came in at the same time. And I, and I just said, I'm very sorry. I will have to take this other job, but I'm glad to, you know, let's t keep talking. But as soon as I turned him down once, uh, I never heard from him again. <laughs> <laughs> Not surprising now. No, I mean, it's, well, I mean, see, there's a great story just, and that was right at the beginning of your career. So the other early act that you worked on at Corpse Mire was, was Fishbone. Um, which was another one at that time. I kind of just randomly, I don't know how I came across that album, but I loved that thing. It was insane. Yeah. I was a huge fan of Fishbone, uh, the, the work that Dave Kahn did with, with them uh, producing. And so I got to, actually, I was an assistant on um, The Reality of My Surroundings, which was, I mm. believe, their second one, maybe the third record, but it was a really astounding record with a lot of drama attached to it in and out of the studio. 
and I and I did talk with Norwood Fisher years later about that experience. And yeah, there was a lot of things happening behind the scenes that no one would even imagine. Well, I suppose you could imagine crazy things happening in the studio with some of these bands and uh but fishbone really an exciting band to see live and um also working with them in the studio was fantastic oh it's amazing and actually just to go back to what you're saying about prince it's really interesting because i mean the other thing that i'm kind of have a bit of a name for is uh banging on endlessly about the loudness wars i'm kind of campaigning against the kind of the super crushed super distorted sound that everybody is going for these days and so it's really interesting to hear that you know prince was pushing everything really hot back then because i think of his productions on the whole as being you know kind of super clean and by modern standards they're really dynamic and you know all the rest of it whereas i guess in some ways he he would been helping kickstart the trend you know that has eventually ended up where we are today because these days everybody you know everybody's got a tape saturation plug-in or sure yeah if they're really lucky they've got a real tape machine you know and it, it's kind of I, for, for me i just hear too much of that stuff now i'm kind of bored with that i'm like can we go back to the cleaner sound please right right uh, yeah there was something that he was doing that was different at the time but now it's kind of become the norm and we can thank people like prince for that kind of uh change and uh for some reason it's comfortable to the ears to have a little dirt in there. I mean, well, maybe my ears are a little dirtier than most. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I agree with you. It's, I've got nothing. Um, it's a funny thing because I'm talking about the loudness wars all the time. You know, I mean, it comes from being a mastering engineer and just constantly asked to make stuff louder. But people assume that I'm anti-compression and anti-distortion. Actually, I, I love all that stuff, you know, and I love all of those sounds. It's just when it gets put on everything, even kind of saccharine pop and you know, I just think use it where it's appropriate, use it where it achieves something emotional and, and musically, uh, not just kind of as a preset on on everything. Absolutely. And, and using compression to bring everything forward also. Uh, this was something that I discussed with Jeff Emmerich about, and Jeff was the engineer on Revolver, the mm. Beatles classic, uh, and several, you know, he, he worked with the Beatles all the way through. Mm. One thing that I thought was so wise that he said is that it's, really important to have uh, a background that's hard to to see. You know, let the background be blurred in your mixes. You don't have to see everything. Let some of it fall into the back. And that's one thing I like to to look at when I'm doing a mix is is it important to hear every little bit of it? Is it, it or, or is it better to let there be a big wash in the back that hides things that you can listen to again and again and go, Oh, I I hear now I hear this thing that I never heard before because it was always kind of masked in the background. So I think it's, it's good for things to be out of focus in, in mixes and, and to, to let, uh, to not use a compression on everything to, to bring everything up into the front, you know? Yeah, no, that's, that's fascinating. I haven't heard that. That he'd yeah. said that before. That's a really, yeah, a really interesting kind of way of looking at it. Yeah. Excellent. Well, so this is the mastering show, and we're not going to talk a huge amount about mastering because you're not a mastering engineer. But I am interested to know. I think you're the first guest I've had who's not been kind of directly involved in mastering in some way. How, I mean, how how involved do you get with the mastering? Do you do you attend sessions? Do you? Uh, I mean, is it different for every project? Do you just send it off and hope for the best? How does it work? Well, there I found uh, over over time that uh, there's a few people that I like to send my work to, 
And that's because those people don't dig in too hard on, on uh, what I send them. Just from the experience of having a couple projects come back really different than when, when I mixed it, you know, I started doing pre-mastering here at the studio. So I would finish a mix, basically work on a mix, get it to where I, I think it's finished. And then I will put it, put that mix through, uh, a stereo bus EQ and compressor and then listen to my mix compared to um, other comparable uh, mastered commercial songs that you would hear. Something sonically similar, but mm-hmm. not necessarily the same genre of music. So, but I, I just want to hear the range of frequencies between the the real sparkle on the top to the low end and make sure that my low end is as tight as a mastered project, if it's possible to do that and, and make sure that I've got enough clarity on the top uh, and that the vocal will stand through and that the, uh, there's not a real harshness to what I'm finishing. And that way it seems uh, that I am uh, able to control what happens in mastering better because sometimes I've sent projects to mastering engineers and it seems like they have some presets that they use on everything and they'll just plug them right into uh, my project and um, and really change the perspective of uh, the guitars and um, the low end to the point where this is absolutely not the balance that I sent them. Mm-hmm. So I, the, uh, this is something that I do. It's, it's a pre-mastering at the, at the end of my mixes, I will do a pre-mastering before I commit those, um, mixes to, uh, uh final. And do you print those? Do you send those to the mastering engineer or do you, uh, do you give them to him as a reference? No, I'll print that. That's what I send. That's what I, I give. So, and, it, and part of that is because I want what I'm finishing to be representative of what it'll sound like when it goes to radio. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that's also because I usually work directly with an artist who doesn't understand necessarily that final step of mastering and what it does. So to save the, that final process for the mastering engineer to do, uh, then the artist will become confused and they're like, well, the, you know, your, your mix has got too much mid range or your mix has got, uh, you know, it's a little floppy on the low end or whatever that, however they are going to describe it They're What they're describing is, is the stuff that the mastering engineer usually does. And mm. I, and, and I don't shake it off and say, Hey, well, that's what the mastering it let, let, you know, let someone else deal with that. So I'll, I'll give them a representation of what that the mastering engineer will do. And I'll, I'll try not to go heavy handed on the compression um, so that there is room for the, the mastering engineer to, to uh, clean it up uh, during that, that step. That's interesting. And that kind of leads on to um, another question I was going to ask, which was because, I mean, we'll get onto this in a minute. I, I, I mean, if I was trying to sum up what it is about you and about your book that I love, I would say it's a sense of mischief. I don't know whether you would agree with that. I just I saw an interview with you where you were talking to a guitarist and you were saying to him that you were going to plug his guitar basically 
into a power tool um, mm -hmm. and then record the output of the power tool and the look on his face and then the look of delight on your face when you saw the look on his face just it just made me laugh because it, I just thought yeah you you just like to you know stir it up and get a reaction and get people excited and you know knock them off balance slightly so you can tell me whether you agree with that or not in a minute but the, if that is the case I wondered whether you had had mastering engineers kind of say no effectively or, or say really do you actually want to you know I don't know how many of the the kind of the creative techniques that you use make it into a mix and how blatant they are but I could imagine I know some mastering I'm not this kind of mastering engineer some mastering engineers kind of their clients almost expect them to kick stuff back to them you know and, and they want them to tell them what's wrong and what or what the mastering engineer thinks should be improved and then there's this dialogue and then the mastering engineer doesn't do that much whereas I tend to accept what I'm given and kind of respect all the work that the artists have put in and just try and make the best of it you know as in as in just bring out the best of it um but yeah I was curious whether you've had people kind of so say do you really want to be doing this? And if that happened, whether you'd be, whether you pay attention to it or whether you just tell them to take a running jump. <laughs> well, I have had a mastering engineer um, actually send me back uh, a mastered uh, project that had the guitars uh, so loud, so much louder than what I'd sent him. And I, and I said, Hey, you know, whatever you're doing to the mid range with those guitars, can you not do that? I mean, it really didn't need that much. Uh, and the guy came back and said, well, this is what I always do. And <laughs> it, I thought, I thought, well, you know, I'm not going back to this person again. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, a heavy handed mastering will work for some people, but but not for me. I, I want to have the control over that. I want if I want to really screw it up and make something uh, really honky sounding for some reason, then I want it to translate. The, to, I want the mastering engineer to to um, acknowledge that that's the intention mm. and to to not change it because it it's uh, what they always do. So yes, I I have had some pushbacks. <laughs> But, uh, but then there's the people, like I say, the, the mastering engineers that are, have a very light touch and they respect that there was something going on here with these mixes and they're not going to fool around with it. They're just going to tidy it up a little bit, tighten up the low end and put a little, uh, air or sparkle on the top. And those people that, uh, I could say Michael Romanovsky is great. Um, the people at the kitchen mastering are great. And, uh, I also like John Cunaberti's work mm -hmm. quite a bit. Um, Tom Baker is fantastic and there's others, but uh, I like them because they don't go too far with it. And it's funny because, cause I, I am adventurous and I, I do like to go too far with things, but not my mastering engineer. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Well, it is funny because, I mean, it's one of the things I love about the book. I mean, so just quickly for anybody who's listening to this who doesn't know about Sylvia's book yet, um, it's called uh, Recording Unhinged. Um, and it's, uh, it, she talks about all of the kind of the, the ideas and uh, stuff that she's come up with over her career and also interviews, what, 35 other engineers? I think, yeah, um, I think about 35 um, just legends in the industry and 
it's just it's great because you can kind of drop in and out of it and it's got these fantastic illustrations by Sylvia um, but just to give people an idea of the kind of some of the the techniques that kind of jumped out at me were there was the guitar through the power tool which I love um, yeah. there was building a microphone out of a telephone which by the way I, you may have already done this but my uh, eldest boy is a huge Harry Potter fan and he got uh, I don't know how much you know about Harry Potter but there's this thing in them called extendable ears which they're these magical ears that you can drop down on a on a cord into another room to eavesdrop on people and now there is an extendable ear toy which is this kind of big rubber ear with a cable running out of it to a crappy little amplifier at the other end and you put an earbud in it and I just I'm reading your book and I'm thinking I'm going to record something on my my son's extendable ear that sounds fantastic <laughs> I bet it sounds bizarre <laughs> um anyway I think one time you hung a singer upside down is that right to get him to to try and elicit a, a better performance or a different performance that's right um when I was working with System of a Down on their debut album uh I had the singer Serge hang upside down because I I heard something about John Lennon having been hung upside down and swinging around in a room. And now having talked to Jeff Emmerich, I think maybe that was just a fable. But, <laughs> but somebody gaffer taped Peter Gabriel to a, to a column, That's right? True. That is true. That was a story from uh, uh, Bob Ezrin, who did the Peter Gabriel's solo records. And, and uh, they actually taped Peter Gabriel to a wall when he didn't uh, give them the right performance. And uh, Bob had threatened him, if you don't give me the a better performance, I'm going to tape you to the wall. You're not, you know, you're you're uh, thinking about it too much. Um, so now Peter Gabriel's up on the wall. They mic him up, and he sings beautifully because all of a sudden he's not thinking about his throat. He's thinking that he's going to fall off the wall, you know. <laughs> so uh, th these ways of distracting a singer can can get a better performance out of them. There's all kinds of things you can do. You know, make a singer stand on a ladder, you know, or um, put a singer in a closet um, and in the dark, you know, make them sing. And all of a sudden they're not thinking about, oh, my God, my throat, I have a scratchy throat and blah, blah, blah. And suddenly they're just like they're so distracted that they, they uh, aren't self-conscious anymore. See, I wish people could could see your face now because it, I can see that glee again. You're describing you as these things, and you just love it. And so, I, well, you know, I do torture musicians, <laughs> but sometimes they, uh, you know, sometimes they come here to my studio or have ship me off some to some weird land somewhere to uh, to get to get me to do these things, and I don't disappoint. Uh, this session I was doing last week, I had these. Uh, a band called Hypnotic Vibes here from Colorado. And there's a, they had a horn section, fantastic little horn section. And I thought to myself, well, why don't we do underwater horns? You know, well, we don't have a bathtub in the studio. We don't have a swimming pool. So we just got a big bucket of water. And I asked them, is it okay if we submerge your instruments? And they're like, yeah, sure. You know, as long as it's not salt water or something. So, uh, yeah, so we, so I took a, a SM57 microphone and wrapped it in a condom with a, with a, uh, uh, rubber band and, uh, dunked it into the tub. And then I also did a, another mic over the, the tub. Uh, and then they, they dipped the bells of their instruments into the water and I recorded them one by one. And it was fantastic. You know, some of these ideas don't work. Because you can imagine that, uh, like throwing a guitar off a cliff, which I've done too, 
while it was doing a screaming feedback solo, you're thrown off a cliff and you're miking the, the thing bouncing down the rocks. Um, you would think that would sound awesome, but mm -hmm. actually it, it wasn't nearly as awesome as it, as, uh, as it, you would think. So we weren't even able to find a place to fit that into that, that album. That was machines of love and grace. Uh, but the experience of throwing a guitar off a cliff in Malibu, um, uh, above the ocean was really something that no one is ever going to forget. So, so yeah, see, that, that's, that's an important, I think that's as, as important as actually getting something that was uh, usable. I completely agree with you. I think maybe that's one reason I love the book so much is just that I, I don't get the opportunity to, to indulge in that kind of stuff that much as a mastering engineer because people, you know, they expect something different. And I remember back when I was oh, just really young, um, I would write little bits of music with some friends of mine. And there was one time we were writing, it was a, you know, it, you couldn't really call it a studio. It was just a collection of gear in a bedroom in a house. Um, and it had been raining really heavily and the window was open because it was really hot. And this, this bird started singing outside the window and it was like, oh, this beautiful. So we quickly kind of scrambled around and got a mic out of the window and then did a, did a take. And we were just recording down to two track. And, and we have this kind of haphazard, kind of messy, dubby, slightly reggae we were into the orb back then and all this kind of yeah, yeah. stuff and with, with this beautiful beautiful bird song over top and the occasional car going past and i love that and that sense of occasion that's fantastic you know as an, a mastering engineer there are interesting things that you can do um so don't forget that when you're cutting vinyl you have the end of the album uh, the the inner circle of the album, mm -hmm. and I don't know uh, what what te technical term there is for that, but it's a continuous loop. So if it, on one album that I did that we cut vinyl, uh, we it was for Mechanical Bride. Uh, the uh, the the disc was thirty seven senses. Uh, at the end of the last song, we had an, uh, an atomic bomb sound, and it, the 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 sound of the bomb went into that that uh, loop on the inside of the vinyl so it would never stop blowing up so you, you know the the initial bomb would go off and then it was just this continuous uh explosion uh forever um in the inside loop of the of the vinyl that's fantastic loop and also on the tools uh undertow album and this is not something that i did but but uh, the band asked for this, and I thought it was so clever, is the, there was a hidden track. Um, hidden tracks are something that now that we're in a digital world, it's not so easy to, to do, but there has to be a way to be able to do some kind of hidden, hidden track that is, it, it takes effort to find. You know, it's a, it's a secret prize. Shall I, shall I tell you my favorite? Really? Tell me. Yeah, what you can do... Um, you probably know this. Every every ID on a track has there's a start flag, which is where the song begins, and then there's an end flag. So, but what you can do is, uh, in order to have gaps in between the songs, you have the end flag at the end of the song. Then there's a gap. Then there's the start of the next flag. What most the next song. What most people don't know is that there is a um, there's a, a start flag for the beginning of the CD, and there's a pre gap for the first track on the CD, just like yep. there is for every other track on the CD. So what you can do is you can hide an entire song or more in the pre-gap for the first track on the CD. So when somebody puts it in and presses play, it plays from the start of track one. The only way to hear 
the track that's in the pre-gap is to rewind back before the beginning of the CD. No kidding. Yeah. Oh, that's a good one. It's, I know School Undertow, what they did is at the, the very last song on the CD that's listed, uh, they, they continued numbers. So it was, I think, 13 tracks, and it went to 14 and 15 and 6. And they kept counting with one second in between until it reached the number 69. <laughs> and then at 69. I wonder why they chose that number. I wonder why they chose that number. But uh, at 69, the secret, the secret track would start. But I love the idea of, of having to rewind from song one uh, to, to, uh, to get to the secret track. And, but now the, the problem is that they're, well, can you do that digitally or is it only with CDs that that will work? What, the thing that you're describing? You can, you can only do it on a CD because when you... Um... A file is a file, you know, um, once you rip it. I mean, if, if you rip that CD, probably most players would ignore the hidden track, which is nice because it makes it really hidden. Um, right. Or maybe you could be clever and get it to, to some, somehow capture that as well. But yeah, once it becomes a file. No, you're right. It's the opportunities. Um, I think somebody needs to do some serious work into that. I think so too. <laughs> I think better do some brainstorming on this. I think that there's a, a I think that there are possibilities on how we can really fuck things up. <laughs> must, we must find a way. <laughs> well, what we need is the digital equivalent of, because you can do that thing on vinyl, can't you, with the double groove, where sure. so so when the needle drops in, it, it hits either one groove or the other and you get completely different songs in each one. I think Jack White did that recently. Uh -huh. um, so, yeah, we need a digital equivalent of that. There's, yeah, definitely some, some work to be done there. Yes. It sounds like it's what I thought. It's, it's for you... It's almost as much about the story and the experience of recording uh, and mixing as the sound or, I mean, obviously it's about the performance, but, you know, you're kind of using those strategies in your book to, to get different performances or better performances from artists. I mean, the other thing is you're definitely a gear nut. Um, it seems to me, you know, you, you, you love your Neve console and... Uh, you know, the, your pre's and your compressors and your stay levels and all, all this kind of this stuff. Um, I mean, one of my big things on the website and kind of elsewhere is I'm kind of constantly saying to people, it ain't what you use. It's the way that you use it. Right. So I'm kind of almost arguing the opposite in the sense that I'm telling people actually, you know, yes, it's nice to have a really nice console and some really nice mic pre's and some really nice converters and all the rest of it. But that's not the crucial thing. You know, it's all about the performance. It's all about the the energy that goes into it and, the, you know, the, the end result. And you, these days you can get great results with um, kind of uh, affordable gear. What's your... Um, favorite because i mean there are so many things everybody listening to this has to go out and buy the book because there are so many great ideas in there you know there's like recording the drums through a rubber tube um to to get a kind of a room sound without the the top end and yeah there's so many what's your favorite um if i have to put you on the spot of the the kind of crazy bits of gear that you come up with that you could tell people about oh well um the one thing that I use almost every session, and I have a mix-up right now, and I'm using it in the mix, is this old, crusty broadcast compressor that uh, I use to some drums, uh, and I add that into the mix um, to give it a little graininess uh, and to to let the kick and drum, kick and snare 
uh, kind of poke through a little more. And that's something that I use. It's just a, the crustiest old crappy thing that, uh, that is actually useful. Um, I also use a lot of great old mics, but then I found a few new mics that, that I'm very excited about. One is a Soyuz SU-017, which is Russian made. It's a handmade, uh, tube mic and, um, it's, it's called Soyuz. Has it been into space? <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't think it's the same company that actually sent the satellites into space, but, oh, shame. <laughs> But uh, this is something new that you can get. It's a, it's a fantastic mic. Something that I use on, on every mix, which is a change from previous years, is uh, I've discovered that using old passive transformers across the stereo bus adds a special color to my mixes. And there's different ones that you can get. The... Western Electric 111Cs are on the mix right now. And what they are, just they're just big old blocks of iron. Um, and you uh, wire them up just so that your audio goes through them. I have two matched uh, transformers. They're, they're passive, so there's no power going to them at all. But you're just putting your audio through these things. And it just adds a great thickness and color to these mixes. And, uh, so that's a big change and, and kind of a secret weapon that uh, I've been using lately. Not, not a secret anymore. I guess there's, <laughs> other, there's other great transformers, not just these Western electrics, but there's, uh, Malot keys, there's RCAs, um, and UTCs make these big old passive transformers that were built basically for telecommunications, like for telephone, old telephone systems. So you just get some of these scrap kind of uh, surplus uh, transformers and try different things, put audio through them and see what they do. Uh, I could highly recommend a little experimentation there and you'd have a lot of fun and maybe really change the way you do things. But not the potato? You know, the potato filter, <laughs> we measured it. A, a fellow from Waves came out because we're talking about putting together uh, a bundle of pl plugins, um, special plugins, uh, oh, okay. creating them. And one thing that I've been doing lately is just taking uh, a guitar amplifier and going out of the speaker out of a guitar amplifier and on the way to the speaker, plugging in various things like, like uh, for, for instance, in uh, this fellow I was uh, doing guitar through uh, power tools. That was a lot of fun. But you can also use vegetables. You can use hot dogs, uh, sausages. Uh, you could, uh, you know, you could use all kinds of things. We tried apples. We tried carrots. We tried potatoes. And the potatoes actually work really well. Um, and what we've measured is that it, it there is a high, uh, it's, a, it's kind of a, uh, what do you call it? A high shelf. So it adds a little sparkle to your mix if you if you run it through potatoes. <laughs> See, that's the exact opposite of what I would expect a potato to do. <laughs> no, I know you would think that you'd have some kind of thick kind of thing happening, but no. Yeah, it's, uh, it's more of a high shelf effect. So I'm, I'm ashamed. I'm being potatoist. It's... You know what? The the sausages are very flat. Okay, now I want to try it with a banana and see. <laughs> Bananas are actually very good too. 
Uh, we did try it with a banana. Um, but yeah. And so now what were we talking about? We're talking about, oh yeah, we were talking about uh, potatoes. So potato filter. Yes. I would, I would, I would go for the, the passive transformer over the potato any day though. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's, and you'll have to tell us whether you want us to edit out the name of your secret weapon, uh, transformer there. Cause we could do, oh, we could do that if you like. My head and, and yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. You reminded me about the, the underwater brass thing because I, way back in the dim and distant past, I used to play trombone. Um, oh, and I can just imagine, I mean, I have no idea what that would sound like, but it must be really hard to play with the, the bell of the instrument underwater. I mean, that, that must be bizarre. Well, we did do trombone last week underwater and it was fantastic. There's a lot of bubbling. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> but under, under the water, it was really, uh, really fantastic. And then, you know, you you mix that with the above sound bubbling water and uh yeah it worked perfectly in the track uh, was, i can't uh, wait to hear it and the song was hip the band was hypnotic vibes and uh you can imagine that they was kind of spacey music so it actually worked out perfect <laughs> oh i'm looking forward to it now while before i forget i wanted to i don't know whether you've come across a thing called music tech fest no i don't know about that it's run by the, uh a friend of mine, Andrew Dubber, here in the UK, but he's now, the latest one was in Berlin. He's out in Scandinavia somewhere, but um, it's just this, I think you'd love it. It's uh, loads of people getting together. I mean, he says it's a festival of musical ideas. Um, so people, the, 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 the time that I went, they had people, there was a string quartet playing music that was being determined by people thinking and their thoughts were being picked up on these kind of electrode skull cap things. And that would determine what music the musicians saw and therefore what the music sounded like. There was a guy who had an electronic accordion, um, which he had somehow rigged up with kind of receptors and all the rest of it. So he could use it as this kind of incredible MIDI controller. Um, they have people beatboxing, they have people, all this kind of live stuff. It's just this huge melting pot of, of ideas. And they have this thing called hack camp, um, which goes, kind of runs at the same time as it where anybody can go along and there's just, you know, they have boxes full of electronic gear that anybody can kind of dig in and try and create some kind of new musical instrument. Or, you know, they had people kind of putting, uh, bend sensors onto their hands so that when they flexed their fingers, it would, uh, those, the, the change in the, electronics would be picked up and that would influence the sound there's all kinds of stuff going on i just think you would love it there fantastic, fantastic. yeah there you know uh there's a uh, company's korg has little bits Mo moog has uh uh build your own synthesizer kits with all kinds of different controllers like you're describing and it it's a, a new era of invention which is just what i'd love to hear about there's ideas that i have yet to do too obviously uh, there's, there's a, a whole, uh, uh, a whole land of adventure ahead for me in that I'd like to try experiments with, uh, different gases and running audio through different gases. Oh, yeah. I'll need a pressurized chamber to do it, but, uh, but you know, that, that's something that will happen at some point where, or even just as simple as taking, uh, neon for instance, and running, audio through the neon i think that there's certain frequencies that uh will will, will ignite the neon um and I, I want to do some experiments with that um there's several other things too that i was really going to ask whether you ever kind of sort of run out of ideas there are so many that you've already things you've already tried and you know it's it's great that you're still coming up with stuff and in the book the recording unhinged book we talk about that too the fact that 
really everyone has an oil well of ideas and you're never going to run out, you know, uh, so, so don't be shy with, uh, with experimenting and trying new things. And, uh, and if you're at some point in a, in a recording project and, uh, you're not done with your ideas, well, go ahead and finish that project anyway, because you, it will never run out. So you just have to make a decision at that point that now the, the project's done, even though you're not finished with all the ideas you want to try. It, you just have to finish at one point and say, okay, it's, it's time to move on and uh, go for the next project. I love that. Do you ever, I mean, for me, I haven't written much music in years, but when I used to, I would kind of, I wouldn't call myself, a, I didn't write proper music. It was, I'd have kind of one idea like, oh, I'll sample this. And then, oh, I could, there's a drum loop that I like and this and the other. And I would basically just take whatever ideas were in my head at the time and squash them together until they eventually made something that worked. I mean, yeah. is there an element of that to what you're doing? Or do you, do you kind of have a, this kind of list of ideas and you just pick, oh, that idea might do for this project and that one. Do you know what I mean? How, how kind of closely do you match your ideas with the project? Right. Sometimes it's spontaneous and sometimes these are things that I've planned to do for, for years for the Avatar record that I did this past winter um, was uh, the, the plan was, you know, since it was a Scandinavian band doing a concept album about a wolf and an owl uh, and a, a pike and an eagle, um, you know, and this this was their idea. It's kind of a, a Norse fable let's say, I thought, well, let's do this project in a castle because I happen to know where a great castle is with a Neve console in it. And I kept that one in the back of my head. Well, when the right project comes, we're going to this castle. And I threw it out there to them and they were like, yes, perfect. So we went to the castle. And then after that, uh, we went to an island in Helsinki to do vocals in a prison. And <laughs> because... I thought it was appropriate. Well, why not? You know, and it, and it worked out. It was fantastic. It was the perfect environment to get a great performance from the singer. And then uh, I have always wanted to record a great pipe organ. And during pre-production for this Avatar record, I realized that they wanted a big dramatic ending to this this album. And the uh, the rough drafts of the orchestrated part had a pipe organ. And I thought, well, they, you know, check, we get the, <laughs> the pipe organ. So we found a, a church in Gothenburg, Sweden that had, it was a big cathedral and it had a huge pipe organ and we got permission to go in there and record. So a lot of these ideas have been floating around in my head uh, for years, but then the spontaneity is, is, stuff is, is, is also really great. I do keep a lot of, you know, hoses and ropes and <laughs> other things available just in case, you know, power tools, you know, just in case we might want to go there. But sometimes it's not appropriate, you know, and plus it's more important to get your foundation tracks done so that you're not screwing around so much that you you miss out on the, the real important foundation parts, the drums, the, the bass lines and uh, so uh, in order to really have fun you have to build in the extra time that you need in these projects yeah that's to have to to be able to 
you know, blow a day on a stupid idea that doesn't work out. <laughs> you know, I was curious. Uh, roughly, do you, do you have any kind of sense of what kind of proportion of the crazy ideas make it to the final records? Because you know, you're saying sadly that throwing the electric guitar off the cliff didn't. Um, is it like 50, yeah. 50 or is it worse than that? Or is it better than that? No, it's much better than that. It's actually, it's more around 80, 20, oh, 80% will make it into, um, uh, an album. Oh, that's, that's uh, excellent. I, lo I love that because I just remember I was, I don't want to excited, but I was very interested. Uh, the Foo Fighters did a recent album and they recorded it in, in Dave Grohl's garage, uh, garage. Yes. Um, and, um, I love the idea of that and, and the kind of the attitude behind it. For me personally, when I listen to the record, I'm not convinced I can hear. He was He's kind of really excited about the, the garage sound that he got. And I, I don't know whether it's, it sounds like the Foo Fighters and it sounds like a damn good recording to me. But, um, so, yeah, I, I love the, the idea that you can do these things and that they, they really influence the final sound. I'm inspired by, by you and by the book. I, I don't know how much of this I will be able to work into my my day job as, as a mastering engineer, but I'm definitely going to, I got a binaural microphone, one of these ones that you can wear in your ears yeah. um, for my birthday last year. And I'm kind of picking up, uh, gra gradually collecting ambient sounds and interesting things from that and stuff. So um, maybe I need to resurrect my, my career as a, an off the wall musician <laughs> to, to flex these I, muscles. I encourage it. <laughs> I figured, I figured you probably would. Well, Listen, thank you, Sylvia. It's been fantastic. It's, uh, it's so great of you to, to talk to me. And um, I, seriously, anybody listening to this, um, I mean, they can find details to the book on your website, right? Which is sylviamassey.com. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, you can find details there. It's also for sale uh, at the publishers, Hal Leonard. Also, Amazon is carrying it. Um, other retailers too. So yes, and thank you so much for having me, Ian. The pleasure is all mine. Uh, great to talk to you. It's fantastic. If you like this show, please leave a rating and a review wherever you found it. Head over to themasteringshow.com, sign up for the hot list, the email list, so you get notified of future episodes and any competitions or special offers we might have at any point. Take a look at the show notes. There's a load more information like this on my website, productionadvice.co.uk. And you can find me on Facebook and on Twitter at Ian Shepherd. This week's show was edited by John Tidy at reaperblog.net and the music for the show was by Kaylee Law. Thanks for listening. <laughs>